0: in an extended section of this prophetic work dealing with true and false prophets. The unit begins back in chapter 23, in which chapter the basic or fundamental criteria which distinguishes each category is revealed. The true prophet is identified and vindicated when what he predicts comes to pass. The false prophet is identified and unmasked when what he predicts does not come to pass. This complements the pattern of Deuteronomy 13, where Moses himself indicated that this would be the way that you would know a true from a false prophet. In context of Jeremiah, as we have learned from our study of this prophet, the false prophet of Jeremiah's day predicted peace, peace, peace. Interminable peace and prosperity for the nation, with the corollary prediction that the nation's capital, Jerusalem, was a veritable eternal city, inviolable and indestructible. Jeremiah's prophecy, on the other hand, was that war would devastate the nation, and Jerusalem would be destroyed. She would be leveled, burned to ashes. The false prophets of Jeremiah's day (coughs) proclaimed the status quo was good, and that the progressive lifestyle was the chief end of man and woman. Said the false prophets of the age, idolatry is not evil, idolatry is good. They also said, these scions of the then contemporary culture, sexual immorality is not evil, sexual immorality is liberating, progressive, acceptable, and to be tolerated. The false prophets preached that oppression of the helpless was not evil. It was one way of advancing the agenda of the elite ruling and progressive class in the nation by holding the weaker and less fortunate class of people subservient to the progressive rulers and their elite class. And the false prophets declared that political intrigue and deceit were not evil. In fact, political deception, intrigue, stonewalling, and incompetence were good, very good for them, their political allies, their cronies and their donors, their lackeys in every echelon of the culture of the nation and its capital. Chapter 24 of the book of Jeremiah contains a symbolic illustration of this contrast, this antithesis between the true and false prophets. The Lord God shows Jeremiah two baskets of figs placed before the temple. In the nation's capital city, one basket contains very good figs. The other basket contains very bad figs, figs which are rotten, rotten through and through. And the false prophets of Jeremiah's day, those figs rotten to the center, these false prophets... Live in denial. Yes, false prophets live in denial. They had already been forewarned of Babylon's threat to Judah and Nebuchadnezzar's armed might unleashed against Jerusalem. In Nebuchadnezzar's first year as king of Babylon, 605 B.C., he and his army... In pursuit of Pharaoh, Nico of Egypt had besieged Jerusalem for the first time. Note Jeremiah 46:2 and Daniel 1:1. 1, 1. Out of that siege, <coughs> Nebuchadnezzar had deported Daniel and his three friends to captivity in Babylon. Note that chapter 25 of this section of Jeremiah, Contains the prophet's speech in that fourth year of King Jehoiakim, which was also the year 605 BC. Though Nebuchadnezzar subsequently withdrew, leaving Jerusalem and Judah intact, he nonetheless had reduced Jehoiakim to vassal or servant status, subject to the Babylonian Empire, in the place of the Egyptian Pharaoh, whose vassal Jehoiakim had previously been. And now, 605 BC, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, is indebted to Nebuchadnezzar, emperor of the world, for sparing his nation and his capital city. But like the false prophets and the disobedient nation itself, Jehoiakim did not believe that his actions, his lifestyle, his political connivance, his political deceit and treachery, his dangerous political alliances with anti-Babylonian regimes in Egypt, Philistia, Moab, and Edom, Note Jeremiah twenty five, nineteen to twenty one. Jehoiakim believed that none of his political shenanigans would bring repercussions from the leader of the mightiest nation power of the world. King Jehoiakim and his advisors, his crony counselors also lived in denial. They even attempted to transform their nation turning the nation of Judah into an ally of Egypt, so that, emboldened by their pride and arrogance, they rebelled against the emperor of the world, who would once again march in display of his power over tiny Judah and besiege Jerusalem for the second time. 597 BC, note Jeremiah 24, chapter 27 and chapter 28. Denial of Babylonian suzerainty in concert with living in denial of the consequences of political treachery, political incompetence, religious idolatry, social immorality, and corruption. Denial brought reality. The reality of the wrath of Babylon in truth, the reality of the wrath The righteous wrath of Almighty God. Deny political reality and destruction is inevitable. You may chant peace, peace, peace until the enemy is at the gates. The enemy who does not live in denial but the enemy who is driven by the passion to destroy you. Using your own peace obsession to disarm, to emasculate, to render you impotent, to resist his relentless commitment to subjugate you, to subjugate you to his own worldview, his own lifestyle, his own ethos, his own iron fist. Babylon had demonstrated that power to subjugate Judah and Jerusalem twice, 605 and 597 BC. A stark reality which belied the peace party's denial of an international political threat. And yet a reality, two invasions, mind you, two real invasions, A reality that underscored the radical antithesis between false prophets in Judah and true prophets in Judah. Especially the true prophet of the Lord in Judah, the protological Jeremiah. Now, with chapter 29... The narrative antithesis between true and false prophets in Judah and Jerusalem enters the realm of transition. Transition from the false security of the status quo, me-centered progressives, to the end of that very era, the end of that lavish capital city lifestyle, the fiery bloody death of that smug elitist self-centered lascivious nation the truth of the true prophet is the truth of god's dealing out evil for evil denying evil as evil denying good as good only invites the wrath and judgment of God. The principle is built into the very fabric of the universe and can no more be invaded, evaded inevitably than Jerusalem can evade destruction in 586 B.C. If you ever doubted that God judges wicked nations in this world, 605, 597 and 586 B.C. is proof positive. All you have to do is read your Bible. Jeremiah not only prophesies the truth as a true prophet of the Lord, he also enters the narrative transition. The narrative transition between the present and the future, certain destruction of the nation and its capital city. That transition is the shift from nation-state to exilic captive. The transitional shift from Judah to Babylonia, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jeremiah experiences the finality of an era passing away in God's wrath, but he also experiences the beginning of a new era transition of life in exile, life in a strange and alien land. With chapter 29, we contemplate life for the people of God in a transitional era, God's people in Gentile territory, under Gentile power and rule. God's people in a city not Jerusalem, a capital city not Zion. And to this transitional, exilic community, to these people of God among the Gentiles, Jeremiah reveals God's will For an Age of Transition, chapter 29. He writes a letter. He writes an epistle to this community of God's people in Babylonian captivity and reveals God's will for them while they remain in a land other than Canaan, while they dwell in a city other than Jerusalem, The climax of the true prophet versus false prophet unit of Jeremiah chapters 23 to 29 is this letter, this epistle, which addresses the transition God has decreed for his people even in exilic Gentile circumstances. Do not be deceived. It is also a redemptive historical foreshadowing device. This people is called to remain faithful to the Lord even in exile. This people is called to rest on the promises of God and his rich grace even in exile. This people is called to submit to God's will, for their pilgrim status in a strange land. This people is called to wait, to wait, and to wait for the era of death transitioned by exile, waiting for that era to be replaced by a new age of restoration, resurrection, repatriation. Restoration, resurrection, repatriation to a new Israel, relocation to a new Jerusalem, restoration to a new Canaan. The prophet Jeremiah's story is an existential witness to this age of transition, for he is the prophet to those who wait. Wait for the better age of a new Israel, in a new Jerusalem, in a heavenly Canaan, world without end. Jeremiah's prophecy, Jeremiah's prophetic narrative biography is drawn into the drama of the Old Testament redemptive historical transition. Judah among the nations, Israel exiled amidst the Gentiles. While a restoration to the land of Canaan is assured at the end of 70 years captivity, note Jeremiah twenty-five eleven and 12, and Jeremiah 29, verse 10. While a return to Jerusalem is promised and realized, nevertheless, The remnant return will signal an even greater redemptive historical transition when in the last days, the new Israel, the people of God of the end of the age, will leave the old Canaan behind. They will forsake the Jerusalem below, and they will sojourn among the nations dwelling amidst the Gentiles until he comes until the true and eschatological Israel of God comes in all his heavenly glory to gather his sons and daughters out of all nations, Jew and Gentile, gather them all into his everlasting kingdom, the new Jerusalem of the kingdom of heaven. No more transitions. No more sojourn, no more fire and death, but grace upon grace, life everlasting at the feet of Jeremiah's Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eschatological Jeremiah. He transcends the false prophets. He transcends the political traitors and incompetence. He is the sweet object of worship, making all idol worship an abomination. He is the pure and spotless son of man whose beloved bride is ever chaste and ever faithful to him as he is to her. He is the singular king of kings, beneath whose scepter the saved out of all the nations bend their knee in humble adoration and thanksgiving for his free and gracious sovereignty, which has rescued them from the enemy and granted them without merit or desert everlasting peace, eternal rest, no more deceit and denial. He, he and he alone is the center of their life as he is the center of the heavenly Canaan, as he is the center of the glory splendor of that heavenly Jerusalem. The anticipation of the great transition in the clash of the true with the false in the protological Jeremiah's day drives us as it drove Jeremiah to the Lord and God of Jew and Gentile alike, Making up the Israel of God of the end of the age, world without end, in and through the eschatological Jeremiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. The transition that is here before us in Jeremiah 29 is an anticipation of what is coming when Jerusalem will be destroyed again in 70 AD at the prophecy of that Jeremiah of the end of the age. Do you see? what God is doing in the revelation of his purpose and his plan for the people of heaven. All right, well, let us consider the structure of this unit, namely, this section on true and false prophets in chapter 23 to 29, noting the symmetries Or the parallelisms which in two separate units sandwich prominent symbolic acts. The structure here is intentional. It virtually leaps out from the page of this section, the pages of this section to invite you to contemplate what the prophet is doing in arranging his prophetic material. You will notice that there is a general section on true and false prophets generalizing their principles and their character. And then there is a specific unit, chapters 26 to 29, in which we have a specific illustration of true and false prophets by way of illustrative biographical cameos. We actually put Names and faces upon these true and false prophets who practice these general principles of veracity and falsehood, duplicity. Now, the first framing device is in the general section, chapters 23 to 25, which sandwiches the symbolic act of chapter 24 and contains the symmetry of the language of shepherds in chapter 23 that inaugurates the unit and chapter 25 that closes this subunit. It's the only place in these chapters where those terms occur. And these are false shepherds, the very antithesis of Jeremiah, which places the sandwich or the spotlight in the center upon the symbolic act of chapter 24. I already alluded to that in my opening remarks. This is, of course, the vision of the basket of figs, the good and the bad figs, a vision or a symbolic demonstration which is exegetical of true and false prophets. Good figs representing the true, bad figs representing the false. You also notice one more interesting thing about this unit. In verses 11 and 12 of the last chapter of this unit, there is a concluding mention of the conclusion of what Jeremiah is prophesying, namely, an exile of 70 years captivity. It is the only place in the book of Jeremiah that this number appears, with the exception of chapter 29, in which it also appears in the concluding chapter of that unit. Very significant that these two units which deal with true and false prophets generalized and specified are bracketed by the 70-year captivity Now, with respect to chapters 26 and 29, as I've already alluded, there are specific illustrations. We move from the general to the specific here in this second subunit. There are specific illustrations of true and false prophets. The illustrations are prophetic narrative history. There are prophets in this section. There are false prophets in this section and there are true prophets in this section. They are named and they are characterized. We have narrative historical cameos of true and false prophets. We move then from the general characteristics of what a true and false prophet are in 23 to 25 to specific illustrations of true and false prophets in 26 to 29. Who do we meet in chapter 26? we meet, first of all, the true prophet Jeremiah. And you recall that they wanted to seize him and kill him in that chapter. But the elders remembered another true prophet, the prophet Micah, who had also predicted the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. And so they spared Jeremiah, but they did not spare another true prophet who also prophesied what Jeremiah did, The prophet Uriah, who was killed by King Jehoiakim, killed with Jehoiakim's own sword. The antithesis of this unit are the false prophets in chapters 28 to 29. In chapter 28, we have the incident of Hananiah, the false prophet Who breaks the yoke from Jeremiah's neck. That's the symbolic act in the center which is sandwiched between the true and false, namely that yoke which God told Jeremiah in chapter 27 to put around his neck as an illustration of the yoke of Babylonian subjugation. Hananiah in chapter 28 breaks that yoke, contemptuous of Jeremiah's prophecy that Judah and Jerusalem will go into exile. Then in chapter 29, we meet three other false prophets, Ahab, Zedekiah, and Shemaiah. We'll look at them in some detail later on. But once again, notice that we have a framing or bracketing device of true versus false prophets Sandwiching the central symbolic act that determines whether or not the true prophet is true and the false prophet is false. Is Babylon going to put Judah and Jerusalem under the yoke of subjugation? Now in 29.10, at the end of this uh, second subunit, we have a reference to the 70 years captivity again. So <clears throat> that uh, is parallel or symmetrical with the 70 years in 25, 11 and 12, which ends that first subunit of this section. In other words, it's as if the true and false prophets are being tested with respect to whether or not they're going to verify or falsify that prediction of the 70 years captivity. It's it's. <clears throat> instrumental and fundamental to the two units of this contrast. Now, you also have some other parallels in this second subunit 26 to 29. In verse 20 of chapter 26, you have the name Shemaiah. You also have that name in chapter 29, verse 24. Only you'll notice if you caught on there when I listed the four false prophets, On that line, opposite 28 and 29 in your outline, Shemaiah in 29 is the false prophet Shemaiah. Shemaiah in 26 is the father of the true prophet Uriah. So there's an interesting antithesis there, but the name occurs in the opening chapter of the unit and in the last chapter of the unit. There's another name that occurs in both of those chapters in 26 and 29. In verse 24 of 26, the name Shaphan. And in verse 3 of 29, once again the name Shaphan. It's the same person in this case. In chapter 26, he is the father of a Hikam. A Hikam who preserves Jeremiah's life after Uriah is killed, executed by Jehoiakim. The Shaphan in 29.3 is once again the father of Elassah. Elassah who bears Jeremiah's letter to Babylon, verse 3. So that we have similar names in 26.20 and 29.24, 26.24 and 29.3. We have once again in indications of the symmetry of the structural units here. Do you have any questions about uh, anything that I've indicated uh, on the structure? Do you want me to uh, go over filling in the blanks? Did you not get uh, what you should have in those uh, spaces? If not, I'll be glad to repeat it. Do you want me to give it? I'll give it again. Let me start at the top. Okay, the symbolic act in 24, that blank line, is the figs, good and bad, which is exegetical or illustrative of the true and false prophets. Then, uh, underneath that, the blank line, verses 11 and 12 in chapter 25, that's the 70 years' captivity. The three lines opposite, chapter 26 in the next subunit, The three true prophets, first of all, Jeremiah himself, second, Micah, who was an 8th century B.C. prophet, contemporary of Isaiah, and finally, Uriah, who is murdered, executed by Jehoiakim. Then as you go to the right side of that line, the blank (coughs) uh, to the left of verse 20, is Shemaiah, S-H-E-M-A-I-A-H, And verse 24, Shaphan, S-H-A-P-H-A-N. A symbolic act in 27 is the yoke that Jeremiah is told to wear by God. A symbolic act indicating the yoke of Babylonian bondage. Down on the four lines opposite 28 and 29, first of all, Hananiah, who occurs Whose life is described in chapter 28, and then in chapter 29, the three false prophets, Ahab, Zedekiah, and Shemaiah. Hananiah is also a false prophet. 29:10 is once again parallel to 25:11 and 12 up above. It's a 70 years captivity. And then underneath that, 2924 is Shemaiah, so it will line up with 2620 above it. And 293 is Shaphan, as it will line up with 2624. The only difference there is that the Shemaiahs are different. Shaphan is the same. He's the father of three sons: Ahikam, Elisa, and Gemariah. <clears throat> We'll talk about them in a minute. <clears throat> but the Shemayas are different. Scott? Since it looks like from your outline you're, just going to be, you're going to be discussing chapter 29 after this, I'm wondering, do you see any uh, significance to the fact that you've got the symbolic act in chapter 24 in between the false and shepherd, and then, then the symbolic act? Obviously you do. you label symbolic act in both cases. Um, so is there is something interesting that you could, that you'd like to comment on in terms of this? the san- the sandwich device is featuring or focusing this illustration, which vindicates Jeremiah as a true prophet, even as he sees the vision of the figs, and even as he wears the yoke. So in other words, <clears throat> there's both a general specificity. There's particular specificity, there's symbolic, illustrative specificity, there's narrative, historical specificity here, and it's all arranged in such a way as it keeps bringing you back to this, uh, this revelational symbolism of what is, what is being described in Jeremiah's career. Namely, he is the true prophet of God who stands against the false, even as Uriah and Micah, although Micah is not his contemporary, Uriah is. So yes, the, the, the symbolic act is sandwiched because it's at the center of this whole discussion of true and false prophet. It is actually God's revelatory endorsement in terms of a visionary experience in the case of the figs, and an actual existential experience, a, a everyday experience for Jeremiah as he walks around Jerusalem with his yoke around his neck. I, I'm assuming you're going to say yes to this, but based on what you said, but do you think this uh, emphasizes for Jeremiah, you mentioned this incarnational theme, you see? And, and obviously, this is something that you know, I don't see so much in Isaiah as I see it here, based on your structure. I is, is it, this, this kind of repetitious theme emphasized that incarnational OT? I think it's drawing him into that identification. Um, I think what's significant about this 29 chapter, as I indicated in my opening remarks, is that he's, he's moving beyond his identity with Judah and Jerusalem. He's moving into his own identity as a pilgrim, as he will be pirated and taken down into Egypt. He will be taken into exile. He's anticipating this transition in the history of redemption that is going to come, that the old Israel has to learn this pattern, even though there's a restoration out of it. That is a sub-eschatological drama. The semi-eschatological drama of the New Testament will be that there is no return to Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be Jerusalem delenda. Jerusalem will be destroyed. And that pilgrim generation will now merge itself into all the nations. And of course, the fully consummate eschatological is that heavenly Jerusalem, which is not earthly at all. It's completely transcendent and permanent. So we have this, this unfolding pattern, this progressively unfolding organic pattern of leaving that old earthly arena behind, uh, the sub-eschatological Old Testament, the semi-eschatological New Testament, the consummately eschatological heavenly and eternal. If that makes sense to you, it does. But I'm kind of is that within? I am thinking incarnational in terms of him being a foretaste of Christ, right? About Christ you know, right. Because so. Christ, himself, see, see the, the 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 restoration of, of uh, Jerusalem in Jeremiah's prediction is an earthly restoration. Christ doesn't have a restoration in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's destroyed in seventy A.D. It's the mission of the church. It's the church going out into the nations. Okay, so there is no city on earth in the semi-eschatological uh, era. And so Christ himself is embodying that as he sends them out in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. So when we come then to the next stage, there, there is only one further development of that. That is where... Christ Himself is permanently embodied. That's where he is glorified in his incarnate state in the eternal Jerusalem, the heavenly Canaan. The, from, from, from the protological Jeremiah tasting this in terms of the Old Testament experience, okay, then embodying it himself in the sense that he experiences exile into Christ, who himself. Becomes the chief pilgrim and sojourner, etc. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, yeah. these transitional shifts. At least that's the way I see it. Um, something, uh, something uh, far more remarkable is going on here than just Jeremiah writing a letter. You know, <clears throat> he's writing a letter, which is in, in, uh, prophetic in its own right. See. It's a, it's a piece of prophecy which deals with the great transitional shift, which the Old Testament Israel is going to experience in measure, earthly, physically, externally, and uh, New Testament Israel is going to experience semi-eschatologically and transcendent, uh, uh, consummate uh, Israel or consummate people of God are going to experience perfectly. Any other questions about the structure? All right, now, uh, let's have someone read verse 2 of Jeremiah 29 and read it nice and loud and clearly so that we can all hear it. Anybody like to do that? Go ahead, Art. This was after King Jehoiachin and the Queen Mother, the court officials, And the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the artisans, had gone into exile from Jerusalem. Okay, thank you, Art. Now, uh, you had read Jehoiakin in uh, verse 2. Is that what your Bible says? Mine says Jehoiachin. Jehoiakin. Chin. 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 Well, the C-H is pronounced like a K. Jehoiakin. Okay. Okay, Uh, now, uh, that's not really what the Hebrew text says. What does the Hebrew text say? I have to call on Ben. Jeconia. It's Jeconiah. Yeah, it's Jeconiah. Is that an NIV? Yes. yes. Well, we could have counted on that. <laughs> that. That's not what the text says. All right. And it, and it blows one of the questions I wanted to ask, you see. Because I wanted to ask you who Jeconiah was. All right. So now, now you've given it away. Jehoiakin. Now, let's take a look at the chronicle of the Chaldean king, which is printed there on your outline. Uh, first of all, what's Chaldean mean? Anyone? Babylonian. Babylonian. Very good. What's a chronicle? Historical fact. Historical fact. It's historical fact. It's a record of historical facts. It's like the annals or the historic chronicles, right? So this chronicle of the Babylonian kings is a piece of a tablet that was found in the 19th century, put in the British Museum, was translated in 1956 by Donald J. Wiseman. And let's take, let's read this. So I'm going to ask somebody to read that quotation from the Chronicle of the Chaldean Kings. Read it out bright and loud so everybody can hear it. and Let's follow as it's read. Robert, did you want to read that? Okay. In the seventh year, the month of Kislev, the king of Akkad mustered his troops, marched to Hadiland, and encamped against the city of Judah, and on the second day of the month, Adar, he seized the city and captured the king. He appointed there a king of his own choice received its heavy tribute and sent them to Babylon. Thank you very much, Robert. Well done. All right, now let's begin by uh, solving the puzzle of what's being referred to, keeping in mind that this is an archaeological record of a historical narrative of what this king did. It was discovered, as I said, uh, in the mounds of Nineveh in Assyria. And so uh, we have it uh, for uh, our own uh, interest. Let's begin with the city of Judah, which this king captures. What city is that? Anyone? It is Jerusalem. All right. It says he captured the king of that city. What king in Jerusalem did this king capture? Jehoiakim, correct. Jehoiakim, verse two of Jeremiah twenty-nine two, Jeremiah twenty-nine. All right. So this is Nebuchadnezzar's record of his capture of Jehoiakim, even as you read it in Jeremiah twenty-nine two. All right. So now let's ask, who is the king of Akkad, and what is Akkad? Who is the king? Who captured mean, Nebuchadnezzar. It's Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so why is he called the king of Akkad and not the king of Babylon?
1: There's a language called
0: Akkadian. That's where it gets its name. It comes from Akkad. It's a region. It actually includes Babylon and ancient Assyria. So it's broader than just one of those uh, localities. It's a, it's a broader reference for a larger region. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar is the king of the whole region. He's king of Babylon and Assyria, or what was left of Assyria, so he's king of Akkad. All right, now it says that he came, he appointed a king of his own choice. So he captured King Jehoiakim, who is the king of his own choice that he appointed. Was it Zedekiah? It is Zedekiah. Very good. He places Zedekiah on the throne in the place of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim's other name, we had it in the New American Standard, Jeconiah. And he's also called... Coniah. Very good. Alright, so he actually has three names in the Bible referring to the same person most commonly called Jehoiakim. Alright, now that brings us to the issue of what is the seventh year. What does this refer to, in the seventh year? Okay, your head is up. Well, I would just guess in the seventh year that he was king. Very good. Who was king? Nebuchadnezzar. Excellent. That's exactly right. In the seventh year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. All right, now, okay, done so well, what year would that be? I'm guessing 597. It's actually 598, but but we'll we'll, we'll give you an A minus. All right, now why do we say 598 rather than 597? Notice that the month is given. It is in the seventh year of his reign in the month Kislev. Okay, now the month Kislev is December. When did Nebuchadnezzar become king? What was his first year? Is that 605? 605 is his first year. All right. So his seventh year. If you count the year in which he becomes king, you have seven years to 598, 498, 598. I'm sorry. So December of 598 is his seventh year. Well, he captures the city in the second day of the month Adar. When is the month Adar? The month Adar is March. So, he comes to the city in December of 598. He conquers the city, or actually enters the city, in March of what year? 597, right? See, it fits perfectly, doesn't it? So, here is this text from the Babylonian Chronicle. Telling you what Nebuchadnezzar was doing on this campaign, and it matches—excuse me—it matches exactly what you're being told from the Bible. And in fact, it's one of the ways in which we can date that biblical event because we know when this year was: seventh year, first through 605, seventh year 598. The march after 598 is 597. That's when he took Jehoiakim, captured him, and carried him off to Babylon. Neat keep digging keep digging over there okay take your break now on your outline uh... we want to take up the next question below the text of the Chronicle of the Chaldean Kings that we uh, read. Incidentally, that's a very small section of a much larger work. You can see it's from page 73 of that book, and uh, the book uh, includes uh, many more pages, some of which have bearing upon the biblical text, some of which do not. But in any event, uh, this particular one was appropriate for uh, the second verse of this 29th chapter. <clears throat> so that raises the question, what's the date of Jeremiah's letter? He writes this letter in verse one. It's mentioned again in verse three. Uh, what's the date of this letter? Or is that important? Giving you a clue, isn't it, Ben? Well, I would say it must be, it must be between the second and the last uh, uh, captivity. The um, last siege of Jerusalem? Jerusalem. Okay. okay. Now, the fact that we have the second verse there, what does that suggest to you? Well, we it after it's close to 597. It'd have to be after 597 because he's already mentioning. That Jehoiakim has been carried away. <clears throat> so <clears throat> this letter is sent after Jehoiakim has been carried off to captivity. <clears throat> now, are there any other letters in this chapter? Is Jeremiah's letter here uh, that begins in verse four? The text begins in verse four. Is that the only letter that's in this chapter? know in the new king james version the whole passage is indented as though it is one letter but no it's not really one letter okay you'll notice that jeremiah's letter ends in verse 23 and then he is uh, told to say to Shemaiah in verse 24 thus says the lord Now, this is Jeremiah being told to say to Shemaiah. Now, where is Shemaiah and where is Jeremiah? Let's start with Jeremiah. Where is he? He's in Jerusalem. Where's Shemaiah? He's in Babylon. So that means another letter, right? This is another letter, okay? And in fact, in verse 29, we're told that there was another letter because... Zephaniah reads that letter. So this is the letter of Shemaiah in Babylon to Zephaniah in Jerusalem, dealing with Jeremiah, who's also in Jerusalem. And that letter is in verses 25 to 28. So the content of Shemaiah's letter is given here, which leads to a second letter of Jeremiah. Verses 31 to 32 are a second letter of Jeremiah to the exiles concerning Shemaiah. Shemaiah has written uh, to Zephaniah. Zephaniah reads that letter to Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, Respond to Shemaiah. And uh, the last two verses of the chapter are Jeremiah's reply. So there are at least three letters here. Uh, so this is a chapter of letters going back and forth between the communities in Jerusalem and in Babylon. Looking at verse 3, what's the role of Elissa and Gemariah in this verse? What's their role? What's their function? Ben? Couriers. They're couriers. What kind of couriers? Are they just... Pony Express couriers, or... Are they they just U.S. Postal Service guys? They're royal couriers. They're royal couriers. Very good. Excellent. Yes, they are representatives of the king. Who is the king? Zedekiah. Okay. They are royal couriers, which means that this letter is being carried as part of an... embassy... It's an ambassadorial presentation. Now, this raises an interesting feature of this chapter. Why would Zedekiah allow his couriers to carry Jeremiah's letter to the exiles? There are all kinds of speculations as to what's going on. Namely, Zedekiah is trying to make sure that Nebuchadnezzar knows he's a dutiful vassal and subject king. Maybe accompanying this ambassadorial exchange or this letter exchange was the annual tribute. It's not mentioned in the text. It is mentioned in the Babylonian uh, uh, Chaldean record that we just read, and it's mentioned in the Kings, uh, Second Kings, uh, record of Jehoiakim's capture. But there's nothing in the in the in the context here to suggest that. However, it's not out of the context. In other words, if he's allowing letters to go from his palace to Nebuchadnezzar's palace, does he also send a few presents along with it? Possible, quite possible. So Zedekiah is allowing this to go on because he's still attempting to maintain contact with that exiled Jerusalem community, exiled Judean community, and keep up his uh, uh, good graces with Nebuchadnezzar, who, of course, carried them away. So these two individuals are, uh, uh, are named to carry this, uh, th- this epistle from Jerusalem, from Jeremiah in particular, plus perhaps some other ambas- ambassadorial gifts. Yes, question. You mentioned two possibilities of why the king would allow this seems that both of those possibilities the king wouldn't care whether it's jeremiah's letter or somebody else's he would care if it's jeremiah's letter because as we will see uh as we move into the 30th chapters and the 40th chapters of jeremiah there is a fairly friendly relationship between zedekiah and jeremiah unlike the hostile relationship that exists between jeremiah and jehoiakim There doesn't seem to be any relationship between Jeremiah and Jehoiakim except the prophetic. He prophesies what's going to happen to him. But uh, Zedekiah will actually consult with Jeremiah. He will call him into private counsel. He will actually call him out of his prison cell into the royal chamber to talk to him. So uh, this letter indicates that early on, there was a fairly open, decent relationship between Zedekiah and Jeremiah. And so it would be in his interests to allow Jeremiah's letter to go in the royal dispatch, so to speak. Now, Elisah. Who is Elisah? You'll notice in the third verse, he's called the son of Shaphan. We pointed this out in the structural outline. Shaphan is this scribe in the temple of Jerusalem. He's a man who is probably the chief scribe in the temple. Very important role. He copies out documents. He may, in fact, even copy out portions of the scriptures. He's responsible for preserving them, for passing them on. He is a father of three sons. Elisa is one of them. Ahikam in chapter twenty six is another one, and the third one is Gemariah. He is not to be confused with the Gemariah of this verse. Okay, this Gemariah in verse three of chapter twenty nine is the son of Hilkiah. That Gemariah of Hilkiah is otherwise unknown. But the Gemariah, who is the brother of Elisha, and the brother of Ahikam, and the son of Shaphan, will appear in chapter 36 of Jeremiah, verses 10 to 12 and 25 of chapter 36. The third brother will hear the words of Jeremiah's scroll as they are read in the presence of Jehoiakim. And what will Jehoiakim do with Jeremiah's scroll? He will slice it and, not dice it, he will slice it and burn it, feed it to his brazier, to his uh, warming pan. All right, so, um, in that chapter, in chapter 36... Gemariah, also the son of Shaphan, brother of Ahikam and Elisah, will plead with Jehoiakim not to destroy, not to incinerate that scroll. Notice the role of this family. In every place where they occur, they are Jeremiah's allies and friends. Gemariah, Tries to protect his scroll in chapter 36. Ahikam protects his life in chapter 26 after Jehoiakim, that same king, murders Uriah with his own sword. Ahikam protects Jeremiah from the wrath of Jehoiakim. And Elisha carries Jeremiah's letter. He bears the epistle of the prophet. There is a close Relationship then between these three brothers and probably their father and Jeremiah. Why? Quite possibly because Jeremiah was of priestly stock. Remember, in chapter 1, verse 1 of this book, we know he's from the priestly line of Anathoth. That means that he had probably familiarity with Shaphan, the scribe of the temple. The family knew one another. And therefore were mutually loyal and supportive of one another. Any questions? All right, now we've talked about true and false prophets. We've said that this twenty chapter is the concluding chapter in this description of true and false prophets and prophecy. And in particular, this 29th chapter specifies uh, false prophets as individuals, as characters. They are named and described. All right, so they're false prophets. That's a description. But why are they false prophets? What are they prophesying that's false? What's the content of the preaching of these false prophets? Why does Jeremiah label them false prophets? Why does God label them false prophets? Where is their preaching described here so that you can tell me, aha, there it is. There it is in the passage, there it is in the text. We know what they were preaching and we know that that was false. Alright, you have to look at verse 28. Verse 28 tells you what was false about the preaching of the false prophets. In this case, particularly Shemaiah. But it's true of of all of them. All right, your head is going. What's false about what they're preaching? Well, it seems the point he's making is that they're going to be there for a long time. And he says, don't believe the false prophets. It seems logical to conclude there's, that they're saying something contrary to what Jeroboam is telling them. That is correct. Say, what are they saying? They're saying they're going to come back soon. They're going to come back soon. All right. So the exile is not going to be long. That's what they're saying. All right. So what? how long is it going to be? Now you have to go back to chapter 28. Chapter 28, verses 3 and 11. Because here is one of the false prophets, namely Hananiah. And what does he say about the length of the exile? Less than two years. Less than two years. What's Jeremiah saying? Seven. Seventy years. So, the false prophets are saying, this isn't going to last long. This is only a little glitch in the get-along. Okay? This is just a little blip. See? So... We'll get over it soon. And Jeremiah says, don't believe him. You're not going to come back for nearly two generations. So the false prophets accuse Jeremiah of being a false prophet because they're the true prophets. And Jeremiah is accusing the false prophets of being false prophets because he's the true prophet. Okay. So. The central issue here is part of what structures the end of the two subunits. Notice that the 70-year captivity is crucial to the end of each of those subunits in chapter 25 and in chapter 29. It's the only place in the book of Jeremiah where the 70 years captivity is predicted. The only place. Very significant for what's at stake here. True versus false prophecy. But there's more than that. It's not just that they're telling a lie, they're not saying the truth. There's an irony here an antithetical irony. What are the false prophets saying about the people in Jerusalem? They're safe. They're safe. They're not going to go where? They're not going to go into exile, right? Because the exile is going to be over soon. They're going to all come back in two years. So you're not going to go into exile. What's going to happen to those people in Jerusalem? In fact, what's going to happen? They're going to They're going to die. They're going to die. Now, there's going to be a remnant of them that's going to go down into Egypt, and some of them are going to be left. The poor are going to be left in the land. That is true. But the majority of that nation is going to be destroyed. They're going to be killed when Nebuchadnezzar lays the city down, and he raises the city finally in 586. So the false prophets are saying to the people in Jerusalem, you're going to live. In fact, they're going to die. And what is Jeremiah saying about those people in Jerusalem? the very antithesis you're going to die you're not going to live and that applies also to the so-called dead people that have gone off to Babylon they're actually the ones that are going to live and return so the message of life and death is opposite here the false prophet says you're not going to die you're going to live the true prophet is saying you are going to die you're not going to live So that the, the last irony is the most bewildering, although it's really not the most bewildering, is it? Because people believe what they want to hear. All you have to do is feed them with what they want to hear, and they'll believe it. Because it satisfies their jollies, it satisfies their sense of pleasure, it satisfies their sense of security, it satisfies their sense of self-esteem, it satisfies their sense of no accountability. Tell them what they want to hear. And you'll have stadiums full of them listening to you. You can even get 20,000 out on a Sunday morning in a mega church. All you have to do is tell them what they want to hear. The false prophets are telling the people in Jerusalem what they want to hear, and they're living in denial as they do it. Because they've already been warned. They've already seen that army outside the walls of that city twice. Third time's a charm. The third attack isn't going to leave anything standing. But they still believe. They still believe the guy that says everything's going to be rosy. They still believe that the only scale is up, 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 progress, 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 progress. More of this, more of that, more of everything else as if there's no end as if there's no judgment day coming and when it comes why you liar you liar prophet you were deceiving us the whole time all you were doing was building your own reputation all you were doing was promoting yourself All you were doing was fancying yourself in the center of the spotlight. That's all you were doing. And the whole time you were a demagogue, a liar, a deceiver, a cheater, and corrupt, corrupt right down to the bottom of your toes. A lot of dead people suffered for those lies. A lot of dead people. But feed them what they want. Put off the day of judgment. Delay it to the next crisis. Kick it down the street. You don't have to tell the truth. All you have to do is give them bread and circuses. Jeremiah, he tells the truth. And they beat him. They arrest him, they want to kill him, they throw him in prison, they stuff him down into a mud cistern, they want to suffocate him to death, they want to shut him up, they want to close his mouth, they want to censor him, they want to make sure he never gets on mainstream TV. the guy that's telling the truth is the guy that's vindicated in the end. All right, so the people won't listen to the truth teller, but they love the liar. They're in fits of adulation over the liar's. They make idols of those liars. These are the truth tellers of our culture. We won't die. Everybody's coming back in two years. We're going to bring them all home from Babylon. And God says, all right, we will give you what you want you want to believe the lie then we'll give you the end of the lie and that end is the reality of death it's not going to be pretty but that's what you've asked for Jeremiah doesn't stop telling the truth, simply because nobody will listen to him. That's what he's been called to do. That's what the church has been called to do. The church is called to exercise a prophetic voice. And when it comes to a time of cultural and social crisis, it is time for that prophetic voice to be heard. Because we're not talking about polite matters of propriety. We're talking about immorality. We're talking about debauchery. We're talking about deceit and duplicity. We're talking about a culture which is sinking into an abyss of sin, which is so vile that you can't imagine some of the things that are in the back, in, in the back rooms that are being proposed as civil rights. You would be horrified to know what they're imagining. Are we left becoming a remnant voice? We may be. We may be. But this much is true. Jeremiah's letter was a letter to an exilic community in which he told them to be of good hope. And that hope is ours in and through Christ Jesus, who is greater than all of the so-called moral paragons of our corrupt age because he's so unlike them that he is altogether lovely, attractive, and to be worshipped and adored. We will be left holding on to him, and in many ways we will realize that we've been brought to the position of the early Christian church in the book of Acts, Well, the Christian church was excoriated and persecuted. They held on to the risen Christ. There wasn't anything else to hold on to. To whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's no place else to go. We're going to be left alone with the one that Jeremiah was left alone with. We're going to be left alone with the Lord. That's all we're going to have to hold on to. Are we going to be content with that? Are we going to be content to hold on to Him and to the Word of God? Or are we going to listen to the sirens of the age and be tempted into the same kind of proud arrogance and self-smug conceit, which has destroyed every nation from the time of Assyria to Babylon Persia, to Greece, to Rome, to Germany, <clears throat> Are we going to forget the lessons of history and then relive it? Well, at any rate, Jeremiah reminds us that the truth may be in the scaffold. Nonetheless, it's still right. Now the fate of Ahab and Zedekiah is described in verse 22. They are executed by Nebuchadnezzar and you'll notice how he executes them. He roasts them in fire. Does that bring up another story? Babylonian story? Nebuchadnezzar story? Go ahead, Kay, your head's nodding. Meshach and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What chapter? Oh, what book? Daniel. Daniel, what chapter? Oh, I don't it's know. only a year and a half ago. You had a sermon on it. <coughs> <laughs> Maybe two. You're close. Add one. Three. Daniel chapter three. Yes. All right, so the fiery furnace in Daniel 3 is also reflected here in. Uh, verse 22 of chapter 29 of Jeremiah. In other words, roasting somebody in a fire in Babylon in order to execute them was common. So common that it, all, it goes all the way back to the Code of Hammurabi. Have you heard of the Code of Hammurabi? It's famous Babylonian law code. It goes all the way back to 1800 B.C., 1800, 1700 B.C been translated into English, you could probably find copies of it on the internet, but there are a number of those punishments in the Code of Hammurabi, which are, and the person shall be burned with fire, and the person shall be burned with fire, and the person shall be burned with fire. It's an all traditional Babylonian way of punishment. So, this is not unusual here, even though it kind of strikes us, nonetheless, there's another biblical case, and there are ancient Babylonian cases. Why were they executed? Verse 23 tells us, They have acted foolishly in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives. They have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. All right, adultery and speaking falsely in God's name because they're false prophets, those are self-explanatory. What about foolish acts? What is Jeremiah saying there? What is behind that foolishness? Commentators don't know, but here's my guess. It has something to do with political intrigue. The foolish acts are acts which threaten the Babylonian Empire. After all, he's not going to execute these two guys for committing adultery in Israel. Nebuchadnezzar could probably care less about adultery in Israel. He's not going to commit, he's not going to execute them for speaking falsely against the Lord. That's Jeremiah adding to something that Nebuchadnezzar has got him on the carpet for. What's Nebuchadnezzar got him on the carpet for? For acting foolishly. Were they involved in some kind of political intrigue in Babylon trying to unseat Nebuchadnezzar? Were they involved in some group of people that wanted to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar? Were they involved in some kind of intrigue to remove him From the throne and to replace him with somebody that was more favorable to them and to the Jewish exiles. We don't know. But that's my guess. Because I think the foolish acts are the very thing that sparks Nebuchadnezzar's wrath so that he roasts them in the fire. He didn't roast them in the fire for just incidental things. And certainly he didn't roast them in the fire for adultery and speaking falsely in the name of the Lord. Something more is up. Something very serious, political, or uh, or cultural. All right. Who is Zephaniah? What do we know about Zephaniah in verse 26? Notice what he's called. Called the overseer of the house of the Lord. Anybody else in the book of Jeremiah called the overseer of the house of the Lord? You go back to chapter 20, verse 1, and Pasher. This term overseer means he's the administrator of the temple. He's kind of like the business manager. So, Zephaniah, Pasher, both have the same office. What happened to Pasher? What did he do to Jeremiah? He beat Jeremiah. He put him in stocks. And what did Jeremiah say would happen to Pasher? He said he would go off captive to Babylon, and there he would die. Which means that Pasher probably was carried off in the 597 B.C. captivity. And Zephaniah replaced him. So Zephaniah takes Pasher's place in the temple as the administrator or overseer as the temple, as his title indicates. Well, there is good news in this chapter. And at the end of your handout, you'll see the eschatological projection of chapter 29 and what I call the eschatological enlargement. Next week, we'll begin to look at this enlargement. Okay, next Thursday we'll begin to take a look at the central eschatological unit of Jeremiah, namely chapters 30 to 33. What we have in 29 is an introduction. What we have in 29 is a preview of what is going to be spelled out in great detail in chapters 30, 31, 32, and 33. So that's the reason I say, Projection in 29, enlargement in 32-33. 30 and you'll notice that the vocabulary I've lined up is identical. Vocabulary that occurs here in 29 is also vocabulary that is enlarged and amplified in chapters 32-33. 30 so we'll work on that next week. We'll be beginning to look at the good news in Jeremiah, particularly the eschatological good news, particularly centering in the new covenant. Any questions? So read chapters 30 and 31 just so you're familiar with them uh, when we come back next week at 7.30, and and we'll, we'll talk about some uh, good news for a change. These false prophets were indicating that they were only going to be there two years or less. That kind of sets the case for Jeremiah's letter. I didn't hear the rest of you, Ben. It really really sets down the date for Jeremiah's letter. must have been immediately after after that. uh, I think so. Yes, yes, I think so. Any other comments? Let's bow on the word first. Lord, you have called us to the truth because you are the truth. There's no shadow of turning in you. There's no deceit in you. There's no lie found in your character at all. We grieve over the falsehood that Jeremiah encountered. We grieve over the rampant falsehood that's abroad in our own generation. But because we know you as the truth and your Son who is the incarnation, of the way the truth in the life we are content to hold on to the truth of your word to the truth of your own righteous and moral character to the truth of the kingdom of heaven we are content to hold on to those riches and to face our own generation and our own age realizing that your sovereign will may indeed be the will Of bringing judgment upon our era. But that you will not allow the gates of hell to prevail against your church. And so, O Lord, we hope in that promise. The promise that we belong to a better Canaan, a better Jerusalem, and a better Israel. In fact, we are the Gentile Israel of God. Keep us then in faith, in hope, and in the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray sincerely, fervently, and humbly in his precious name. Amen.